Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Unbuckle Podcast. And I am joined today by the Mr. Vivek Ramaswamy, author of Woke Inc., entrepreneur extraordinaire, and GOP presidential candidate. Man, I have been so excited to see your campaign get off the ground and inject much needed truth into this campaign and into the overall political discussion. But I have to admit, man, there's been some rumors and innuendo out there. And and so I want to help some of my listeners put that to rest. Uh, are you a WEF stooge? Are you a George Soros puppet? Uh, is there any truth to that at all? That has to be the funniest thing I've heard. I mean, it's obviously a total lie all the way down, but it's actually a particularly funny lie. Because it's one thing if you're taking somebody who has nothing to do with the World Economic Forum and saying that there's some sort of World Economic Forum stooge. It's another to take probably the number one public opponent and crusader against the World Economic Forum's agenda over the last three years. I mean, just go back in history and see when I was writing Woke Inc., when I began talking about these issues, most of the people who are worried about WF bucket puppets today didn't even know what the WF was until I was actually educating them about this three years ago. But actually, even more than that, I'm also somebody who's done something about it. So I'm not just a commentator. I'm not just an author. I actually started a company whose sole premise was to take on the ESG agenda in corporate America. There's a reason that Politico or New Yorker or Axios or Bloomberg, I mean, they have attacked me as the leading anti-ESG crusader in America or the, the anti-woke godfather or whatever they call me. They mean it as criticism. There's a reason why is that I see this as a fundamental threat to liberty. The merger of state power and corporate power together to do what neither can do on their own, that, that is bone chilling because it actually co-opts even the mechanism of the supposedly free market. I use that in air quotes because it's not the free market to be able to get done through the back door what government could not get done through the front door under the Constitution. So that's well, a serious problem. But, but the funny part to me is that the very critics who now will say that I, I forgot to address the, the substance of their criticism said that I had received an award from the World Economic Forum. Guess what? My only interaction ever with the World Economic Forum was rejecting the award they wanted to give me. That was it. Nada. <laughs> and yet they still listed me on their website, which it turns out they have a bad habit of doing. They did the same thing to Elon Musk. They've done it to many others. But the funny thing is the people were criticizing me for rejecting an award that the World Economic Forum wanted to give me as the only linkage. Actually, Funny enough, they're, they're like little, little little sheep. They stay silent about the fact that Donald Trump speaks at the World Economic Forum, has countless other connections, and I don't hold that against him because I'm a big believer in free speech and open debate anyway. But it shows that I think there's a little bit of cynical forces going on in the amongst the Twitterati. But what else would you expect? It's partisan politics, and uh, you don't uh, you know if, if you if you can't take the heat, stay out of the kitchen. So that's my yeah. philosophy. Well, and and I for starters, I, I think you've been courageous in that, and you even stood up for Donald Trump, right? Uh, and and yeah. you know, in his name, he has a tendency to call names. Not really your style, but that is the way yeah. he goes. And if you've got a you know, you got to have a tough hide to be in this business. Um, well, I want to dive in real deep on something because you have characterized wokeness as a religion. This is something that you've said yes. over and over again. You were one of the first to say it actually um, mm -hmm. in your, in your book, Woke Inc. So I just have a question and, and this gets to the heart of this for me because I've really, I've really tried to think deeply about what this means across the policy landscape, across the legal landscape. Could you elaborate on what you think the establishment clause and the free exercise clause implications of that characteristic should be? 
Absolutely. So I've been trying to actually work this way, work, have this work its way through the legal system. It's a legal theory that I developed with a former law professor of mine. It's published in Woking and elsewhere. We're now looking to actually get cases finding their way up the legal system all the way up to the Supreme Court, because I think we have the winning hand here. So, so here's the basic point, okay, that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 prohibits discrimination on the basis of religion. But, you know, a little known fact, but it's black letter law, is that that means that not only can an employer not discriminate against you on the basis of your religion, they also can't force you as the employee to bow down to the employer's religion. Well, it turns out that if wokeness meets the Supreme Court's test for what counts as a religion, then actually much of the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion agenda, and woke agenda you see in corporate America today is a flat out civil rights violation. And it turns out it meets the Supreme Court's test to a T. Certain words you can't say, clothes you can't wear, comprehensive system of beliefs. Secular humanism actually has been held by the Supreme Court to count as a religion for Title VII purposes. There's actually another religion that I don't subscribe to called creativity, which holds white supremacy as its core prong, which says that all that is good for the white race is good for salvation. Not my religion, but the Supreme Court says that that still meets the Supreme, the Supreme Court's test for what counts as a religion for Title VII purposes. So if white supremacy counts as a religion, anti-white supremacy, which is what wokeness itself claims to be, ought to count too. Yet guess what? Corporate America isn't forcing white supremacy down people's throats, but it is forcing wokeness down people's throats. So I think this could be the civil rights revolution of our century. And, you know, there's a subtext to my entire candidacy here. The premise of my candidacy, in part, is to bring that civil rights revolution into the 21st century, but applying its principles even handedly. And I think that that's something we got to do with precision. I think it's why the next president of the United States, if he wants to take on these issues, can't just be a foot soldier you know, parroting someone else's message. It's got to be somebody who first personally understands these issues deeply because they are complicated. It's not just big government anymore. It's this hybrid of big government, business, and culture that's the real restraint on liberty. And that's why, bluntly, that's why I'm running for president because for better or worse, I'm not spouting somebody else's ideas. I created the ideas that other people, I'm grateful, are now advancing as governors or as congressmen or whatever. But when you're talking about a national revival from the White House, I think it needs to be the person who understands this first personally. That's why I'm doing this. Well, and the way I've characterized it is this, is that you wrote the book, man. You wrote the book three years ago that lots of the candidates we see out there, including Donald Trump, who just came out heavy against ESG. You're setting the the, the actual conversation here um, uh, and you kind of did the homework for them. And I see that over and over again. Uh, and I think it's very true whether the left meant it as a as a dig on you that you're kind of an intellectual godfather of the unwoke movement, if you will. And, and you've given us a, a battle plan, so to speak, and how to, how to really get rid of this. But I want to, I'm going to, I want to touch on something that not very many people talk about from a conservative perspective. Um, so school choice, school choice is, is taking charge across the country right now. And many see that as a very good thing. I have a worry about this that I would really love to know uh, your perspective on. Uh, it, it, some grassroots conservatives even see this as a little bit like injecting government money into private schools, which to me is a little like a merger of state and corporate power. As president, how do you suppose we could limit say, the influence of very big, woke corporations like Google or Amazon or these other ones that you've been fighting uh, on some of these new schools that may open up over school choice? 
So, look, I think that it just takes the battle frontier one step forward. I just think it's behind the post-1980 revolution in other ways. So I think school choice is going to be an unambiguous good step forward. Is that an end-all, be-all? Absolutely not. So here's what I'd say. The first thing you asked me what I can do as president. What I'm going to do as president is I'm going to shut down the Department of Education. The U.S. Department of Education has no reason to exist. And actually, much of the wokeism and the curriculum that you see in public schools, not a lot of people know this, and even in private schools, comes from where many bad things originate in the federal government, which uses its funding, but then has strings attached to say what you must actually implement in the school. So people miss that in this debate. It's not just the local school boards, it's the tie to the federal government itself. The problem is when you have tens of thousands of bureaucrats sitting around doing something that they have no business doing. I mean, the public schools are funded and run locally in local communities. What is the federal government doing? I think the first thing a president can do is get the federal government out of the way and also set an example of what you could do with useless government bureaucracies. Clear answer I have is shut them down full stop. Now, that's not an end-all be-all solution. I think what Iowa has done is is a great step forward, then create the, the, the model of school choice, universal school choice, actually creating competition where private schools can then compete more effectively with public schools. And also the fact that, you know what? We need transparency. That's a, that's a, I'd, I'd say a level further that I would encourage Iowa and other states to go is to say that parents should be able to see what's being taught in the classroom. If it's in the classroom, it should be online. And you know what? I still haven't heard a good argument against why we can't have cameras in the classroom just to make sure teachers are held accountable. If teachers have a problem with just parents seeing what's happening, I think that that's a red flag. But that also is, I think, the path to a solution. Because you know what? A lot of folks already are tilting the scales with money. So we're not making that problem worse. It's just a pre-existing problem. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg gives lots of money to schools across the country starting in Newark a few years ago. Tilting those scales is itself a pre-existing problem that school choice doesn't create. It's just that it's a problem that it doesn't solve either. But I think the right problem is the combination of choice and transparency, where if parents now have the ability to not only engage in choice, but to see what actually is being taught in their schools, they then have an opportunity to actually act on it. So I think transparency and choice are a pretty unique one-two punch combination. And I think that's the best, if you will, demand side solution to what could mm-hmm. be a supply side problem from the supply of wokeism through either corporate dollars on one hand or the federal government on the other. And for my part, the U.S. president is not God, can't solve everything, but I will solve what I can as president by shutting down the DOE, which is more than I've heard from really any other candidate in their willingness to shut down a federal agency. I think that's Mm -hmm. the way forward. Well, I would completely agree with shutting down the DOE. I mean, they, they have failed every assessment over the last 50 years that measures their need to exist. Um, Okay. So you mentioned the deep state. Uh, I, I heard you talking about term limits. Term limits mm-hmm. for people or, or high, say a Fauci at the CDC, would that be a congressional action or could you do that as president day one? I believe I can do that as president day one. And I put a fine, fine point of emphasis on that because I take a strong view of Article 2 of the Constitution, which says that the chief executive, the president of the United States, actually runs the executive branch of the government. I've been in the private Imagine sector, I can that. tell you. If, if who would have ever thought, right? The people who, the person we elect to run the federal government actually runs the federal government. I've run companies before, right? So, so I'll give you my simple lesson, okay? If someone works for you and you can't fire them, that means they don't actually work for you. It means you work for them. And that's the dirty little secret in Washington, D.C. is the president of the United States, if he can't fire employees, that means he works for the employees who actually run the show. That needs to change. And I think it's unconstitutional. So if you think, I'm going to, Obviously, call on Congress to repeal these civil service protections, to replace them with term limits. 
But you know what? I also believe that the chief executive of the United States is constitutionally empowered to do it anyway. And I take a strong view of ex executive authority on constitutionally well-grounded principles here, and I will act accordingly. There will be litigation on the back of it. No doubt about it. I expect it to happen. You fire an employee, they say that, oh, I have civil service protections. Guess what? We're going to take that all the way to the Supreme Court. And I think I've studied the Supreme Court. I think their view of the Constitution at least a majority of them align with mine on this question. And I think we can actually codify judicial precedent that finally makes sure that the people who we elect to run the government are the ones who actually run the government rather than this cancerous federal bureaucracy that multiplies itself like a national cancer. So what can you do? And so you, you talked about the government into things and you talk very much about the separation of corporation and state. What can you do to get as president because you've done a lot as an entrepreneur with Strive and, and everything that you're working on there. What can you do as president to limit the CCP, the WEF uh, influence in the United States uh, as president in the United States? Well, I think one thing we can do is declare independence from China. I think that's a big part of what causes us to turn a blind eye to this because we depend on our chief rival for our modern way of life. That's a problem. That's different than the USSR in the last century. We never depended on the Soviet Union for the shoes on our feet and the phones in our pockets. We do for China, communist China, dare I say today. And I say communist China because I differentiate the government from the Chinese people. So I think that decoupling from China, declaring actual economic independence from China is the first lever to actually act in accordance with our own principles because we can't do that with the boot of the CCP on our neck. So I could go on at length about it. I know we're a little short on time, mm -hmm. but that is, I think, the number one most potent thing we can do to unshackle ourselves from this new globalist government seated in the mountaintops of Davos, funded by the, by the Yuan from China, I think is declaring independence from China. Then I think we're on a path to actually revive American national identity and unshackle ourselves from, the, for example, another example of this is global climate religion that shackles the United States with, while well, you guessed it, not even laying a finger on China. This is a farce. And, and by the way, I think I'm the only presidential candidate, even in the GOP field, to say this out loud. I'm sure the others agree with me. They, they, won't, they won't yet say it out loud. Abandoning climate religion in the United States has to be a top objective. And I think okay. we need to state these things unapologetically as opposed to dancing around the, the sacred cows we're not supposed to touch. I, I couldn't agree more. One last question for you. Vivek, what sets you apart? What, what sets you apart? Why should you be president of the United States? So a couple of things I would say is one is I don't fetishize the office. I am doing this. I'm not running on my biography. You're not going to hear me bragging a lot about myself. I certainly hope you don't. You're not going to hear me trashing other people. Not, not certainly a ton of that. I'm running on a vision for our country. And here's the other thing that's different. It's not somebody else's vision. It is my vision, a vision that I have first personally developed. I'm not reading talking points handed to you by somebody else on a binder. You'll probably notice something when I give speeches, I don't use notes. I don't use a teleprompter. Why I don't have other people write my speeches. What you get from me comes from my heart, comes from my mind. The policy proposals aren't what somebody else handed to me. They're my deep convictions as an American. Yes, I've had success in the business world. Yes, I've had success in other spheres of my life, but I'm not running on my accomplishments. Okay, you can use those to judge whether I can get the job done, but that's not what I'm running on. I'm running on a vision and it is not someone else's vision. It is my vision and I'm not doing it because I covet the office of the presidency. To the contrary, I just view myself as a vehicle for advancing that agenda. Here's the other thing too. Okay, and I think this is really important, is that I think every candidate running somewhere deep in their bones does care about national unity. I do too. But I think that I'm actually uniquely positioned to deliver it. Okay, if, we, if it was going to have happened under Donald Trump, it would have happened already. 
If you want the guy who likes to pummel somebody else into the ground, Ron DeSantis or somebody else, maybe that's your choice. And I'm capable of doing it too. I've done it plenty. But I think for, for what we really need right now, if we want to have one nation where there's this dialogue about a national divorce going on, I reject that premise because as you pointed out, actually, if we get into a national divorce, the Constitution itself ceases to exist. People need to mm-hmm. remember that. And I think that's, that's unfortunately the, the, the path we're on unless we have a leader who's going to revive the ideals that bind us together across our diverse attributes, across our differences. And bluntly, I'm running for president because I think I am the single best chance the GOP and the country has to actually deliver that to this White House. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't be running. That is my reason for doing this because I care about one nation, e pluribus unum, one America left on the other side of it. And I think we live in a dangerous time where we can no longer take that for granted. And I worry, even if it's a candidate who advances the policies that I want to advance, but does it in a way that leads us on this march to a national divorce, divorce that the Constitution is, is unfortunately going to be an artifact of history. But don't worry, I'm running for president to make sure it's not. Thank you, Vivek, for being here. I appreciate it. We're going to keep an eye on you, and I hope to talk to you Thank again you. soon.